Listen, I hope your summer is going along well. Um, I trust that you are taking some time. I talked to three people, uh, two of them this morning, who are right now functioning at breakneck speed. They are just going a mile a minute. And, um, and they both said to me, without, without me giving any kind of friendly counsel to them, saying that's an unhealthy pace to kind of maintain. You can't maintain that for very long. And God has, um, God has designed Sabbath. God has designed rest. God designed festivals for His people, all with a mentality to say, slow down, take a break, put it down. It'll all be there tomorrow. And, uh, so if your job and your, uh, schedule, you know, lends itself to ha- having that happen at summer, take time to do that. And when you're on it, enjoy it. Put down the things. Uh, when I went camping, some of you know this, I didn't even bring my laptop or phone because I try to go camping to places that they don't have Wi-Fi. Uh, they don't even have cell phone re- reception. That's the good thing to do. So um, anyway, hope you're enjoying your summer, though, and, and not letting another summer just kind of fly by and, uh, and miss what God has in store for you. I hope you're also enjoying your summer just as a, as a family or as an individual, maybe to pick up something that you don't normally do, maybe to intentionally throw a change up in your schedule. Um, we're a family even that, uh, just by where we sit, we once in a while like to just change positions, um, just to be around some different people and uh, it throws people a curve because they're like, man, what are the Carlsons doing in my seat? But, I think because I'm on staff here, they don't get too mad at me. You know, they allow for that. But uh, it's just fun to kind of change things up once in a while. And maybe even in your scripture reading or in how you go about um, walking with God, maybe you pick up a new spiritual discipline this summer and just go, man, I've got some extra time. Let me use it for the Lord. Let me use it to develop faith in what's going on. Well, we've been in this series in the book of John and, uh, and I'd invite you right now to open up your Bibles to the Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four books of the New Testament. And they are all stories. They're all presenting what's called the Gospel, which is another way of just saying the good news. And these are four different men with distinct personalities that God used to record uh, what He wanted us to have some 2,000 years later regarding His Son. And as we look at John, I want to just kind of remind you of a, of a couple of things. Uh, in, your, in, your, uh, in your bulletin here this morning that you should have received when you walk in, there's some notes, and, and you can pull those out and, and fill in the blanks, and, and hopefully those are something that you can take and, um, and use. Put it as a bookmark and, and go back and revisit some of the questions that come up. Kurt had some very penetrating questions last week. Um, he just went through this whole question of identity, and, uh, and, and I went back and I revisited some of those questions that he had. I left it on my desk this week at work just as a visual reminder of some of the things that we looked at from the scriptures last week. One of the things that is really heavy on my heart is that if God's word goes out, it shouldn't return void. It should always accomplish what he wants it to accomplish. And so even as I speak this morning, my prayer is really this. I know that as I read the scriptures, I know that as we look to God's word, it will not return void. That means that God's word may be doing something in someone's life over here that it's not doing in that person's life back there. But God being God knows exactly what each of us needs in here in this place this morning. And my prayer is that we wouldn't just have another sermon. We wouldn't just read another section of scripture, check it off and say, good, we're on to chapter two next week. 
but rather that we would that we would ingest it and that we would dive into it and that we would even hold each other accountable and and go to people there's there's people in this body who have the wisdom to say I am struggling with this do you know anyone who can help me with that and that's just wisdom to say man we don't have it together and that's that's all of us amen we're all in that boat we all need something here this morning so as we look into God's word I would just I would invite you even while I'm talking up here maybe you take a couple moments and just prep your own heart that's part of what the worship music for me does it just it just focuses my attention it focuses my emotion and my mind and my will to say god i come and submit to what you're going to do in here this morning as we look to john um the gospel of john i i took a class in college on the gospel of john and um and after that class, it really became one of my favorite books in all of the Bible. It was a surprise to me. I didn't go into the class thinking that would happen. But I went away from the Gospel of John, this class that I took, uh, by a guy who now is a local pastor here. Um, and I just went away realizing, wow, what a, what a brilliant author this guy John was. And we look to the author in Scripture and we say, well, yeah, but he was divinely inspired. He was divinely helped, right, to, to record and to write and this and that. But I thought about it. I go, you know, it's no different than if my calling is a baker. And I can be divinely inspired to be a phenomenal baker because I have the Holy Spirit residing in me. And we have the Holy Spirit residing in us if we know Christ and if we're in his family. And we too can be empowered. We can be divinely empowered to carry on our work, our calling our child raising, whatever it is we're doing with God's power and God's help. As you look at John, we, we touched on this several weeks ago, but he's a brilliant author. He's, he's not just a great storyteller, although he is a great storyteller, but he has this technique that he, that he uses. And that is this. He tells a story, but then he kind of exploits that story to kind of get at this underlying theological issue or question or point that he's trying to drive home. And this isn't just true in the Gospel of John. Go look at 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, which he wrote also. Look at the book of Revelation. There's always something happening here, but there's always so much more going on underneath. And part of the fun of really diving into a book and saying, God, just help me to get beyond the surface of this, to really get what's here, is that you begin to dive into some of those things and it begins to take on new meaning. It goes from a one-dimensional kind of painting to something just kind of three-dimensional that you walk all the way around and above and below and you just go, whoa, no wonder the brightest theologians in the world could devote their life to the Scriptures and never begin to touch all that's there. Not fascinating about the Bible? Some of you have been Christians a long time. You've heard a lot of people talk about the Scriptures. You've read the Scriptures and there's always more there. Remember this, that John has a goal in mind, and we, and we looked at this. John has this goal as he's writing, and it's this. It's that you may believe, and that in believing, you may have life. He has this very clear-cut purpose that he puts right at the end of his gospel, and he says, this is the reason that I'm writing you. And so as we look this morning, keep that in mind. This passage we're going to look at now is just John beginning to introduce names and accounts into his story. He's building a story for us. And now he's going to bring in a couple of snapshots of conversion. And it's going to, it's going to begin to develop this theme that, that, he's, that he's putting forth. 
These are more than just stories, though, of, of like the first converts, which they are. These are more than just stories of how Jesus got his start with some disciples roaming around the countryside, which they are. In some ways, John, as he points to this very goal or, or end purpose in mind, in some ways he's putting these out as, as a, a, a lawyer might put out exhibits. You know, this is exhibit A, uh, and his name is Andrew. Let me tell you about this guy, Andrew, and how he converted. And they're all pointing to this fact that this Jesus is the one that was promised long ago. This Jesus is the one that we've been waiting for. This is the Messiah. This is the Savior. And let me give you exhibit A and exhibit B and exhibit C. And he's bringing people into the story for a very specific purpose. This next section that we're about to cover covers a span of four days. Last week, Kurt talked about about, uh, John the Baptist's uh, self-denial and how he deflected all the praise and glory and said, I'm not the one. And this week we're going to look at a couple of things. John just specifically telling who Jesus is, boldly testifying. It wasn't me. I told you that already. This is the one. We're also going to look at two uh, converts from Judea, and then they head north and go to Galilee, and there's two more converts there. We begin to see two patterns in John's gospel. One is the many references to very detailed uh, references of time. John has this thing about him where he doesn't just tell you the day. He'll tell you the hour. And here's why I bring that up. The reason that's important to bring up is you realize John was in the inner circle around Jesus. He was one of Jesus' closest friends. And so he was there at all these different things. And it lends authenticity, doesn't it, to say it was about 4 o'clock in the afternoon when this happened. Not just on this day. It wasn't just the next day, but it was 4 o'clock in the afternoon when this question was thrown out. And it just shows John was right there. And he records these things to, to do that. But secondly, we're going to read in the passage here, there's this kind of hidden identity, this mystery disciple that's woven through the Gospel of John. And just watch for it. As you read it, as you study it as an individual, as a family, as you read it around the dinner table maybe, look for little tiny clues where he'll say this disciple and another one. There's several places through the whole Gospel he does this. And it's probably him. It's probably him that was there because the person writing this writes it from an eyewitness account and he says it was this disciple and another disciple. And I think back to what Kurt said last week, that when when Jesus is in your life, his name is the name that matters. Maybe John is modeling that for us. Who's the hero of the gospel of John? Who is it? It's Jesus, always. Everything written is to say Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. So he doesn't say Andrew and this other really cool guy named John. He says Andrew and some other disciple did this. It doesn't really matter what the other disciple's name was, but it was probably him. And I just think, man, what a cool writing style. To just, it's just like a, like a tangible way of saying it doesn't really matter about me. Let me just talk about Jesus because that's what you really need to hear. So we're just going to kind of see that. Look for that as, as we read this morning. I'm going to take this big chunk of scripture in two weeks. This week we're going to look, um, it's really talking about two different things. One is that kind of this prototype, if you want to write a big idea, sometimes you go, what's your big idea? Here's the big idea for this morning. We're going to look at the prototype witness. Here is what a witness does according to the Bible. We want to look to the Bible and see what it talks about. In a couple of weeks we're going to look at what does a prototype disciple look like? What does it look like to become a disciple of Jesus? And this passage, it's pretty long and lengthy. We're going to cover 29 through the end of the chapter, uh, 51, verse 51. We're going to look at those two different things. But this week we're going to focus just on the idea of what a witness is. 
We had a class here yesterday, and it was held by uh, uh, Don Porter, um, led it, and it was really just to give some some tangible ways to help share your faith. And uh, I've grown up in the church, um, and so I've seen a lot of classes offered on evangelism. We call it witnessing. We call it sharing your faith. Um, any of those terms all mean kind of the same thing of just saying we want to spread the gospel. We want to share the good news. And here's what's interesting about an evangelism class. Let me just have you think on the word witness for a second, okay? Remove the context that we're sitting in a church right now, okay? Remove the context that we're talking about God and spirituality in the Bible. Just think about the word witness, and in your mind, give a definition that a seven-year-old could understand. If they said, mom, dad, uncle, aunt, friend, what's a witness? What would you come up with? I want to see, this is a real question that's not rhetorical. What would you come up with if someone came to you and you're trying to explain what does a witness do out of the context of church? First-hand account, okay? Tells the truth. Sharing what you see. Okay, that's that's good enough. There's probably more we could do. But yeah, I think we, most of us got that, right? We said, yeah, witness, that's what they do. And here's what I here's what I just began thinking about it. If you if you shrunk it down and just let's let's just put it as a real simple term as one who observes and an observer, okay? One who maybe gives a testimony, um, tells the truth, you know, swearing on the Bible to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. What a strange idea it is then to need a class or to receive training to to share what you've seen. Put this in the context of this for a second. Let's say that you saw a crime. You witnessed a crime. Someone came along and stole someone's wallet, and you were right there, and they ran off. And you're like, whoa, that just happened. Now, as an observer, you just tell what you saw, right? And do you need training for that? No. This is going to illustrate it really well. Let me do this. I'm going to put a couple people on the spot, and these are people I think can handle being on the spot. If they break down crying, let's give a cheer and support them, and just and just and just let them go with that. But um, let me let me pick on Ben here. Ben's just been up in front of us, so he can do this. Ben, I want to ask you right now if you would just share with me um, why disc golf is fun, and I'm thinking of getting into disc golf. Why should I get into it? He was sunburned yesterday because he played without a shirt. Oh, you mentioned that at the start of the service. Yeah. Go on. Um, it's cheap. As, as long as you own your discs, it doesn't cost anything to go and play. Um, it's accessible to anybody regardless of skill. Um, Excellent. Sounds fun. Yeah. Rich, why is Nancy a great best friend? Talk about being put on the spot. Awesome. That was, that was really good. Good job. <laughs> Woo! He's just like, yes! Booyah! God buy that one. Okay, one more. Mark, no one's making eye contact with me now. They're like, don't talk to me. Mark, I'm, th- I, I, I'm thinking of playing some golf. Why, why is golf fun? Oh, I'm, I, I'm sorry. Look at, I, I'm talking about Mark in the back. He was a golf pro. Mark, why is golf fun? 
Awesome. Thank you. Okay. Let me just say, yeah, he's like, thanks. Three guys, how, how much time did I give you to, to prep for that question? Zero. Okay, it was on the spot. You just had to speak about it. I happen to know three things about these guys. I could pick on a whole lot more people if I wanted to. The point is this. None of them just received training for that. Um, and all they were able to do is they're, they're able to just share immediately some various things. I happen to know Mark plays golf and knows about golf. I know that Rich loves Nancy and is married to her. And I happen to know Ben likes disc golf. I don't know why golf is on my mind right now, but uh, it's really not. Um, the point being this, though, they, did, they had zero time to prep for that. They needed no training whatsoever, and yet they just were able to rattle off, boom, 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 some things because they've experienced. Now, I could ask Patty here, Patty, why on earth are the Atlanta Falcons the best team in football? Okay, do you, do you like the Atlanta Falcons? Okay, she doesn't even know who they are. I, I could have probably guessed that. It would have shocked me if she would have rattled off all kinds of stats about the only one, the only one in this room excited is the guy from the south over here, Travis, who pumped his fist. But here's the point. If you have no experience with the Atlanta Falcons, then, then you need training. Right? Doesn't that make sense? I would need prep work to tell you why the Atlanta Falcons are the best because they're not, first of all. And secondly, <laughs> And secondly, I would need, I would just, I would have to sound like I know what I'm talking about. I have zero experience with them. I don't really care about them. And so thinking about the word witness, here's why I'm bringing this up. Each one of these three people just testified to something that's true in their life. When asked about the Atlanta Falcons, Patty just testified as well, right? I don't even know who they are. I don't know what you're talking about. She could have tried to just blow smoke and started rattling on about the Atlanta Falcons, but probably pretty early on, I'd be like, you don't even know the Falcons. You don't even like the Falcons. You know, what sport do they play? And I don't know. Uh, you know, and so it was just a clear difference there between those two groups of people. Here's the little secret for each one of us. Whether you're a Christian or whether you're not, you are witnessing what you're all about. I mean, from the clothes that you put on, to the way that you drive, to the things that you laugh at, to the things you invest in, to the things that you avoid, to the things that you talk about. So, in essence, we're all witnessing. We're all testifying to what's true in our life to some degree, aren't we? And and you can kind of put on a smoke screen for a short while, but if you're going to be around someone very long, pretty soon they're going to start seeing and going, Okay, I know he says that, but does he line up with that? And I think it's true about this. Some of you hear the word witnessing and you go, man, we ought to witness. Every Christian ought to witness and share their faith. And here's the reality. It doesn't really matter what I believe about witnessing. It just, it, it matters what I, what I do about it and how it comes out of me. Cause it is happening. It is happening in my life right now. I want to read a passage and what we're going to do this morning is we want to look to the scriptures to learn just observing people who are giving testimony, observing people who are witnessing, and glean some, some lessons from them. Look in John chapter 1, starting in verse 29. John 1, 29, it says this. By the way, the John being spoken of here is John the Baptist, in case your translation doesn't clarify that. Kurt mentioned this last week, but it's a little confusing. There's a couple of Johns. One is John the Baptist, 
who was a guy that's out having this little water party that's causing a stir in the countryside, and the delegation sends their suits, and they come out and kind of question him, and they didn't really like their answer and all that. That's the John the Baptist we're talking about in this passage. There's also John the Gospel writer, and that can get confusing. Here's verse 29. The next day, there's that little time reference, okay? So John just got questioned. He said, it's not me. Tell the delegation this is what's going on. The next day... John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Verse 32. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, and then here's what he told him, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. I'm going to just give you three things that I think are practical. I think they're they're tangible. I've called this message trading up. Because as we're going to see, it's like John just saying, look, I'm, I'm this, but, but here's, the, here's the, the, the better deal. Here's what I'm the forerunner to. I'm pointing out something else for you. Here's the first thing. If you want to follow along in your notes, you can write this down. But as a witness, I speak clearly because I know my role. Do you see the clear language that John uses in this passage? He just throws it right out there and says what's happening. He just got questioned by the suits about his role and all of that. And then John sees Jesus and everything changes. John has this sense. He doesn't know all the puzzle pieces, but he has this sense that he's being used in a major way to usher in this kind of messianic age. He has a sense that a huge event in human history is happening right now. And so he ushers some some very clear statements. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. To, to a Jewish mindset, that would mean him saying something like this. Look, there goes the Passover Lamb for all of time. And as a Jew, you would just immediately go, whoa, he's saying that that guy is the promised Messiah that we've been waiting for for hundreds of years and that our ancestors have told us to watch for. And he'll be our eternal king. And he's going to set up an eternal kingdom. And we're free now. That's what that statement meant. Someone says to someone, you know, here, there's the dog of Milpitas, and you'd go, huh? Like you would, that would make any context to me at all. I would say, that sounds kind of rude. Why did you call him a dog? Why Milpitas? You just don't get that. But to a Jewish mindset hearing, there goes the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what that loaded statement means. He's saying all of that by saying that phrase. Get that? John 1.34, we just wrapped up with it. I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. In case you missed the little Passover lamb, clever you know, creativity statement he said, he says it really blunt, really, really clear. As a witness, I speak clearly because I know my role. John spoke clearly. Here's the verses I just referred to. We just looked at them. If John spoke clearly as a witness, here's my, here's my challenge to you. You speak clearly. If you're a Christian here this morning, speak clearly. As a witness for for Christ, as a witness to what he's doing, speak clearly. And here's what that means. Here's what that looks like. Speaking clearly means laying out the truth so that it can be understood. 
John knew his audience. John knew he was speaking largely to an Israelite mindset who would get that term and understand that term. If you are speaking to children, we have people right now who are teaching in our children's ministry, and as they have thought up how to communicate some nugget of God's truth or some little life principle or whatever they're teaching right now, they have thought about the context that they're teaching in. If you're speaking to someone and they're at your office, they share a cubicle, whatever it might be, and you already know some of where they're coming from, just bear that in mind. Speaking clearly means I'm going to take the message of the gospel which doesn't change. And if that were a liquid, let's say that liquid is H2O. I'm not going to change the H2O. I would never, ever change the gospel message. But I might put it in a sippy cup for a little kid. I might put it in a coffee mug for someone else. I might put it in a camelback and bring it with me as I go hiking with someone. The the, the point is, however I can get that life-giving water to the person, I'm going to put it in that container. Speaking clearly means speaking so that the truth can be understood. This might take some forethought. This might say, this might take you saying, how can I most clearly articulate this incredible thing that's gone on in my life? And I'll tell you how you perfect that art. You just start to share. And you go, man, that was so clumsy. Man, I sounded like a cult leader. I don't know what I was saying. You know, I got down these weird paths. Speaking clearly means you're speaking for the person. Not so you can get out four quick spiritual laws and then boom, now I've witnessed to you. Here. That's like chucking a grenade over a wall and saying, yeah, I hope you, you know, hope you missed that or whatever. It's just, it's not really thinking about the other person. It's, it's you dispensing your quick information. John spoke clearly so he could be understood. Here's the second thing that speaking clearly means. It means majoring on the majors. There will always be peripheral issues that will come into conversation as soon as you start to talk about God, spirituality, the afterlife, Jesus, the Bible, all kinds of things. You know this is true. If you've been a Christian, you understand this. And sometimes these peripheral issues just come at you left and right and can get you really confused. But here's the point is that they're peripheral issues, meaning that they're non-essential to the message. So majoring on the majors says this, that you just you start weighing over here, you just bring it back. You start wandering over here, yeah, you just bring it back. Speaking clearly means majoring on the majors. Finally, this is just having the boldness to speak up. You know what? John had every opportunity to see the suits coming and go, whoa, uh, this looks pretty serious. I might get kicked out of the synagogue, which would be a really big deal and a bad thing for my family. Um, I might get physically assaulted here. These are pretty serious things I'm saying. It's legally punishable by death if I point to someone saying he's God and not the one true God to these people's minds. This was serious stuff, but he marched forward. He spoke clearly. The sin of omission is not doing what ought to be done. And there are times that I've walked away from a scenario and I've felt the Holy Spirit just heavy on me saying, Dave, you just committed a sin of something that wasn't done. And that is, you had a perfect opportunity to proclaim me before someone else, and you didn't take it. That feeling is so miserable to me that I go, man, the alternative is to put myself out there and to share and receive you know, negative feedback, receive whatever else. But I don't want that feeling. I don't like the Holy Spirit. I don't like that conviction. So I want to learn from that. Speaking up and being bold. 
John the Baptist spoke clearly, but he also knew his role. John the Baptist, it says in, in uh, look over in, in chapter 1, verse 8. should be just like a column or two over. But look at what he says in, in 1, 8. He says this, he himself, this is John the author talking about John the Baptist, he himself was not the light, he came only as a witness to the light. John knew his role. Here's the way that I kind of got my mind around this, and that is this. Let's just say that Travis over here, Travis plays the trombone and electric guitar, and he's from the South. So he has three things going musically for him that a lot of us don't. Um, but let's say Travis one day has this little garage band called the Travis Jones Band, and they're playing away, and for whatever reason, uh, Bono's in town with his boys, and U2 discovers this garage band named the Travis Jones Band. They get so pumped up about him, they say, you guys are hot, you're the next big thing I can tell, would you come on tour with us? We're starting a European tour in like two weeks, would you come on tour? And Travis goes, finally my big break, I've been waiting for this, finally people recognize me for the talent that I am. But he's pumped, he goes on tour with U2, okay? Now, let's just say this. First first show, okay, very first night, you're pretty nervous, weren't you? Yeah, he was pretty nervous. He's up there, there's, there's just like thousands of people, and, uh, and they're just there, and there's just buzz in the air, and he just like, you know, he plugs into an amp, like way bigger than that thing, and he just hits his first chord. He's nervous, but he's excited, and all of this kind of stuff. Here's what happens by show number five. By show number five, Travis is kind of getting the thing down. He's like, okay, yeah. He's starting to like having roadies who set up everything for him and tune his instruments and all that. He gets a green room and he gets like grapes and water for him before a show. And he's starting to, he's like, yeah, I'm starting to know the routine a little bit. By show number eight, here's what's going on with Travis. He's, He's all of a sudden starting to think, you know, Bono's actually pretty lucky to have me on the tour, really. Um, I mean, I'm, I am pretty good, actually. And I mean, he's just seeing it, but I've known it all along. By show number 12, Travis is so enamored with the fact that these thousands of people have paid good money, waited in long lines, just to see him. And by show 13, he's no longer touring with you two, okay? Here's what would happen in that scenario. It would be really hard not to get like that. But see... He got confused that he, that he's the opening band. They're not really there to see Travis Jones' band, although they're pretty cool. That's not what, what this whole thing's about. John the Baptist was the opening band, and he was completely comfortable in his skin. He didn't get there and go, wow, tons of people are coming out to the countryside just to see me, just to get baptized by me, just to hear my teaching. Woohoo, I'm pretty hot. That's just not where, that's not where he went. Such that when, when the real deal came along, he just said, there it is, go. This is the one I was talking about. And that's a really important thing to do, is to, is to understand your role. John's disciples left him um, to, to follow other people. Here's, the, here's the, second, uh, the second thing I want to point out. As a witness, I speak authoritatively because I only say what I know. John 1.33 says this, I would not have known him. This is John the Baptist speaking. I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize with the water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Again, that's kind of code language in the Israelite mindset to the one that you see the Spirit come down and rest on, that's the one who's the Messiah. That's the promised one. Who, who sent John the Baptist? Who sent him? God. 
All right, he was born in a miraculous way. His whole life, he knew from pre-birth that he was set up to do something really huge for the kingdom of God. He'd been waiting for this moment. He was training for this moment, in essence. If God comes and tells you, Chuck, this is going to happen, and when that happens, such and such, do this, Chuck's going to listen. Chuck's going to go, okay. That's the, this is how it went down. God told me, the one who sent me, this is the one. Uh, some of you have witnessed a, a car accident, okay? Here's, here's back to this idea of a, of a witness, right? I was sitting at a stoplight one time coming home from a hockey game and smashing into me next to me, a person was probably doing 35, 40 miles an hour, however fast, fast enough to knock the car next to me forward into the intersection. And a guy gets out of the car and goes running down kind of by in and out at Blossom Hill near Oak Ridge. And I was like, wow, this is interesting. <laughs> I'm just trying to get home from my hockey game. And, uh, and I'm just witnessing this go on. Some of you have seen car accidents before. Now, when someone comes and says, what happened to you? What I can authoritatively say is what I know. Okay? So I can say this. I was sitting here. It was a red light. There was a car next to me. I heard screeching tires. I looked over. I saw a car smash into it. This car went, run, you know, went forward. This glass went flying. This guy got out of his car and went running, and other people chased him. That's what I could say, because I happen to know that for a fact. I didn't offer any theories about things. I didn't offer any like CSI knowledge that I have, you know, going into the crime scene. And, you know, I mean, I bet all those people who work in that field are just loving that show now because they're like, oh my goodness, everyone's an expert. Everyone knows what they're talking about. I didn't offer any of that. All I offered was what I knew, okay? What makes John's testimony so incredibly powerful is that it didn't come from him. It came from God. And because it came from God, I imagine the way that he said it even, it wasn't like this. Um, I hypothesize that the one whom the Spirit comes down on is the one. He didn't, he didn't have any tinge of doubt to his voice. He just said, look, here is who this guy is. And he says explicitly earlier, I myself didn't know. I wouldn't know what's going on, verse 31, except that I was told. True knowledge of God is beyond human reach. It's, it's a gift to us. This whole series that we're calling, we're calling it decent exposure. If God didn't expose himself to us, if God didn't show and reveal who he was, we wouldn't know. We would be left guessing. We would be left going, well, God's this, and God's whoever you make it, and God's this or that, and that's why God did this. He revealed himself to us. Let me read for you 1 Peter 1.3. Think about your own life for a moment. In 1 Peter 1.3, this verse it says this, In His great mercy, talking about God, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That verse makes it really, really clear that it's a gift from God. You didn't choose to be born. Not one of us in here chose to be born. Not one of us in here really chose to be born again. It's a gift of God. He gave us new birth. Here's what makes your testimony so powerful and so convincing, is when you authoritatively speak on what you absolutely know to be true. God came in, healed my life, and has given me victory over this sin. You know what? I could come at you all day long with all kinds of charts and graphs and all kinds of, you know, evidence. And I could be a PhD. Who can argue with you on that? 
You can speak authoritatively, and it can show in your demeanor and how you communicate it, because it's just true. It's just who you are. I'll tell you what lends more authenticity to that is when you're around someone for a long time. When you're around someone in intense situations, and you go, wow, that stuff really comes out of him even when he's pressed, not just when things are going good. First Peter goes on to say this. Listen to this. In this... You greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes, even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And even though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Do you guys hear the powerful witness-type language that's in there? There's rejoicing that's going on in the midst of suffering. What kind of a witness is that? It's at least one that makes you stand up and go, why aren't you more sad? Why aren't you devastated? Why aren't you in a pool of tears right now? That's what happened to me when I went through a similar situation. It's a witness. It's a testimony. There's faith that's, that results in praise. There's belief that basically shows off joy that's, that's undescribable. It's just, it's like inexplicable. It's like, why is that guy like that? And frankly, some of you have had this. It ticks people off around you sometimes. They'll judge you for it. They'll say, you're being fake. They'll say, that can't possibly be you. I had a conversation this last week with a person who's going through a tremendously difficult time. And he told me, he said, you know, people can't be okay with that I'm doing okay. And I said, well, it doesn't make any sense to them. If you don't have God in your life, you should never have forgiven that person. Ever. you got to seek your own revenge. It just, things don't make sense if you don't have the Spirit of God. Back to this hit-and-run scenario. What if someone comes and says this, Dave, why did that guy smash into that guy? Now, I could start to answer that question right, as a witness, but do I really know? Of course not. What made him run? What made him get out of the car and run from that scene? Immediately, I started playing out scenarios, right? I'm like, man, I wonder if I've seen him on America's Most Wanted. He must have done something bad that he doesn't want to be talking to anyone in any kind of uniform right now. Um, did the guy back there have a drinking problem? Was he in the mob? Was he a Lutheran? It's like, I mean, they could ask me a thousand questions, and I go... I mean, I don't know any of that stuff. I'm a witness. I'm an observer. I say what I know. I, I, I say the truth. Here's the simple phrase. If you want to write this in your notes, here's your simple phrase I want everyone in the room to memorize. I don't know. You know what? That is a great phrase to memorize when someone asks you moral questions that you don't feel prepared to answer. You're a new Christian or a longtime Christian and feel like you should know the answer to this or have great answers. What about abortion in the case of rape? Where do you stand on guns? Paper or plastic? I mean, you know, the question could be kind of like easy or way hard over here. Here's a great answer. I don't know about that. It may not be a moral question. It may be theological. How can you possibly explain the idea of predestination and free will? How do you describe the Trinity? What are these dreams in the book of Daniel talking about? And you can just say, I don't know. Don't know. No idea. There's variations of I don't know, but you can just tell them, I really don't know that. It could be moral, it could be theological, it could be personal. You know, do you believe in faith healer, healers? Is God going to heal your disease? Um, 
you know, why aren't you a nicer person? You know, whatever the personal issue, and that gets kind of painful. But even that, you, 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 can just, you can just let them know, I don't know. Now, I think it's wise as a Christian to have answers and be able to give a reason and a defense for your hope. I'm not saying that you shouldn't grow in knowledge. But what I'm saying is this. As a witness, I had no idea if this guy had a drinking problem. He may have been looking at his iPod. He may have been smashed off his gourd and just it was, it was a mess. And that's why I hit him. I have no idea. So I'm not going to speak to that. I can speak totally authoritatively to what I saw. I know that was the car that hit that car. I know at what time it happened. It was around midnight because my hockey game got over. I came straight home. I know exactly where it happened. I know what the sound sounded like. I can speak authoritatively to what I know. Not only do I speak authoritatively and clearly, uh, but the whole idea is this, that I must not play God, but simply as a witness, just bring people to God. Look at what witnesses do in this passage. Uh, verse 41, look at that with me. Verse 41, it says this, talking about Andrew. It says, the first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is Christ. Verse 42, and he brought him to Jesus. Number three as a witness is that as a witness, you bring others to the source. You don't act as a go-between. You cannot save your friend. You make a lousy Jesus, a horrible Messiah, a very bad person to be a disciple of because in the end, you're a sinner. You're going to fail. You're going to give poor counsel, right? You're going to fail your friend. You're not going to be available 24-7. You make a lousy Jesus. John knew that. When John's disciples went, oh, there's Jesus, left him to go follow him, he didn't go, wait, 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 wait. You haven't graduated yet. Come on back. We have some more. He was happy to let him go. That's something for us, is that we could, we could begin to wean people off of us. Sometimes people come to you for spiritual advice and spiritual counsel. That's great. But eventually you begin to say, have you talked to the Lord about this yet? Have you sought the scriptures? I mean, I'm, I'm happy to talk with you. I'd love to meet with you. But you really need to be going to Christ on this if you're a Christian. You have the Holy Spirit. Let God lead you. I'd love to come alongside and help you, but, but I'm not in that firsthand experience. Andrew did what all of us do when we get great news. When you get great news, you share it, don't you? You just go, man, I got, I got text, 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 text like 90 people and call people and Facebook about it, whatever. It's like we just go, hey, here's what's going on. I'm so thrilled about it. I want you to know about it. That's what Andrew did. So the very first thing he did was like, hey, we came out here to thinking John might be the Messiah. He's not. We found the Messiah. And it says, and he brought him to Jesus. What an awesome picture. He went right within his own circle. Relationship with his brother. Philip does the same thing. Look at verse 45. Philip found Nathaniel. Now we're up in Galilee. Jesus has two different locations here. But John's pointing out this went on in a couple of different regions. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Makes it really clear. This specific one meets all the prophecy. He's the Messiah. And he went and pursued Nathanael to do that. Some of you right now, as I'm talking about witnessing, as I'm talking about sharing, have this sense to you. And I think it's really, really common in a lot of us. And that is this. I don't like to tell people what to do. I don't like to preach at people. I don't like to be one of those preachy people who comes and, you know, and says this is how it ought to be and this is how you ought to believe. 
Let me just let me just turn the lens a tiny bit. Some of you were here last week and remember Kurt talking about Eddie, um, not a person, but the the swirling Eddie that his kids were caught in in a river, and he was he was rafting down I think the Truckee River and his kids are in this this Eddie with no life jacket and he was able to save them out and they all had a good cry and thank the Lord and now they're all with us still. But let's just say you saw tourist Kurt and his family all hopping in the river. And you're an experienced river rafter. In fact, you're a guide. You've got 25 life jackets in your van. And you see this this knucklehead named Kurt get in the river, about to put his kids in danger. Whether you like to tell people what to do or not becomes a little bit irrelevant at this point. I would say there's a certain level of responsibility that as a river guide with life jackets in the car, you have to that family. Let me put it a different way. Some of you have had people in your family who've done this. Let's say Uncle Joey is about to leave your house, and he's drunk. He's going to drive himself home. I don't care if you don't like being preachy at people. You're going to kind of get in Uncle Joey's face if you have to, if he doesn't respond to the first couple times, but say, Man, you're not driving home. Here's the point of this. You'd be willing to tell them what to do, even if they wouldn't listen, to the degree to which you think they are in danger and to the degree about which you care about them. If you're the river rafting people guy and you just, you know, your dog just died, you're in a bad mood, you hate tourists, and you go, fine, less tourists in the world, and you don't care about them, you may not get in their face. You may tell them, don't do that. They say, who are you? You say, well, I'm a river guy. They say, well, you don't have any authority over me. You'd say, fine, whatever. If you don't care about them, you just let it go. Fine, go do your own thing. If you didn't think they were in any danger, you wouldn't be very intense about it. Now overlay that to the spiritual. As a Christian, we believe because the Bible teaches us that judgment day is coming and we're going to be rewarded or punished for the way we lived our life, for our sin. And if we're not covered in the blood of Jesus, if we're not saved by the Messiah, the Savior, we're going to spend eternity apart from God in hell. We're in immediate danger. And if I care about people and think they're in danger, I don't even mind getting a little bit preachy sometimes. I don't mind continuing to go after him. Number four is this. As a witness, I offer the invitation of Jesus to those that I care about. Look at verse 39 with me. Verse 39 says this. Just above 39. It says, they said, Rabbi, talking to Jesus, which means teacher, where are you staying? Here's Jesus' response. Come, he replied, and you will see. Come and see is what he says. Now, look at verse 46. Skipping down, we have Philip. Oh, by the way, verse 43, here it is again. The next day, okay, Jesus decides to leave for Galilee. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one that Moses and the law and the prophets wrote about, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. And here's Nathanael's response. Here's his friend's response. He goes and finds this guy. Here's what he says. Nazareth, can anything good come out of there? Nathanael asked. What does Philip say? Come and see. Isn't that cool? The very day before, he heard the master say, 
hey, where are you staying? He says, hey, come and see. It's this invitation. Now, I love this. He's just kind of mimicking the Savior. And someone comes at him, is it sarcasm, you know, or is it, is it disgust or, you know, skepticism? I don't know what Nathaniel's tone was necessarily. But instead of giving up and going, fine, whatever, you know, do your own thing, he just, he just kind of says, hey, come and see. I love that he offers the same words that he had heard, that he had just heard from Jesus. I think we've lost this art of persuasion sometimes. In persuasion, the energy and the effort goes into the argument and not into the other person. If you see someone is lost or someone who's about to get into a river, you're, you're, you so care that they get your message that you're going to pour all kinds of passion and energy into communicating to them, no matter what the cost. I think as Christians, we ought to be so well-versed in, in presenting Christ with our life, with our words, with our arguments, with our persuasiveness, that people would have to do like backbends to, to not become a Christian and believe in Jesus. That they'd have to squirm and weasel out and go, yeah, and, and they would have to almost just like weasel out of it. And that's the lost art of persuasion. And I'm speaking to myself here in this as well. But I love that that uh, Philip doesn't scorn the question. He doesn't ignore the question. He doesn't walk away. Um, but instead, it's almost like he dangles this carrot. He kind of diffuses it a little bit, doesn't he? Hey, why don't you just come check it out for yourself? I want to take just a couple of minutes here and, um, and, and bring up something about NBC. About a month ago, Kel was up here and he had Ben play chopsticks and he he began to roll out some more of our vision about what, what this church is about as we move forward. And this is a, a second installment of that that I want to talk on right now because community groups at NBC are here for a very specific reason, and I want to give you a few things of where we're headed with community groups. Community groups, by the way, are in essence you inviting someone along and just saying, hey, why don't you come and see? Why don't you come check this out with us? Hey, that church thing was a little weird. I know. Why don't you come and, and, and be part of the dialogue? You're on a journey. Why don't you come and, and, and get to know a group of people in a smaller setting and find out what this is all about? Here are the things about community groups that I want to tell you. Um, the first is this. We, we believe passionately at NBC that no person in this room or in this valley can be in God's will and accomplish God's will for their life alone. Bottom line is that God designed you, God designed me to be in community. And so our, our effort in, in, um, in recapturing kind of this biblical picture of family, remember at the start of this year we talked about what it is to be a family. Our, our striving to do this is in the way of community groups. That is breaking the larger group down into smaller groups. And so that's why we've done that. First John 4.20 says this. Listen to this convicting verse. If someone says, I love God, but hates a Christian brother or sister, that person is a liar. There's our author, John, by the way, writing that. Pretty bold statement. For if we don't love people we can see, how can we love God whom we cannot see? You know what? That doesn't have to take place just in community groups. But what's going to happen in a community group is you're going to, you're going to be invited this fall to join a new community group. You might go excited and everyone's really gracious and receiving of you and you go, wow, what a great time. And then you're going to begin to see that there are real people with real struggles and real issues and real temptations and real letdowns 
just like you. And that's the reality of it. And part of how we press on, part of how we grow in our love for God is showing how we love each other. To come in here and say, I love God, I love God, I love God, and not treat Christian brother or sister with love is, a, is an oxymoron. It's a, it's a disconnect is what John's saying. Number two about community groups is this. Those who are in community groups will be encouraged to grow in the one another's. Sometimes just go through your New Testament circle every time you see one another. There's a lot of one another's in there. And part of how we can get them to go is this. I have, I have surface relationships with several people in this room. I see you on Sunday. I don't know you very well. Frankly, we're pretty easy to get along with each other when we keep it right here, isn't it? But when you start to go deeper, when you start to hang out with me, when I start to hang out with you, there's all kinds of opportunity to practice the one another's. Each of us needs to constantly be known by and knowing other people. That happens in the context of community. Each of us has the idea that uh, we're to be caring for one another and being cared for by one another. I've loved pictures, you guys, of people who've had huge bombs go off in their life, huge joys go off in their life, and the community group is the first to respond to either ministering care, comfort, companionship to that family, or to come around and just go, we're so excited for you guys. Can we do meals for you? And that is such a cool picture. That's the idea that we'll be encouraged to do the one another's. Finally is this idea that we don't, we don't envision our church as being a church where we come to a classroom, we get trained in leadership, all these principles in leadership, then we say, okay, now go out and lead people. We don't even say that we come to church and the, the totality of how you learn about God and learn how to walk is to walk out of here and go, okay, I got three points on how to be a good witness. Now just go do it. But rather to have those life lessons transferred in relationship. That means mentoring relationships that might be formalized, like taking on an intern, having a Friday morning uh, spiritual disciplines group of guys, which, which, which we do here at NBC. It can also happen informally. A young couple that just gets married and says, man, there's something about uh, Rich and Nancy. Man, Rich, you just gave an answer that I hope to give when I'm that far down the road. Can, can we come hang out with you guys once? Can you just tell us like something, some little nugget of truth? What are you doing? It's just attractive. I, man, I love that. I, I want that. You see someone come up here as a missionary and they just look like they've just given their life away. You're like, man, I'm so far from that. Can I please buy you lunch and can you tell me what's going on in your life? Well, in community groups, that same thing can happen. Not just in community groups, but that's why we're so committed to pursuing community groups. That's a little aside about why we're so passionate about that. Here's the other thing about community groups, you guys, is this. We don't, we don't just have 90 Sunday school classes for you to come all through the week, program all through the week. We've intentionally said this. Let's, let's have you commit really commit to a smaller group of people within this local body. And let's, let's allow you to have freedom in your week, in your schedule, in your mental capacity, in gathering your children up and loading into the car for family time, for neighbor time. Instead of three days a week coming to this building, to the church, and wondering why we can't impact our community, we say, let's come out here on Sundays and gather and encourage and build up. 
But then, you know what? Community groups, let's have them off-site. Let's have them in a home. So you can tell your neighbor across the street, travel across the street to my house to come and see. That's what community groups are all about. Let me wrap up with a couple of questions. And I would just invite the the band to, to come on up. The questions I want you to, to wrestle with or deal with or, or address are these. How clearly do my actions, attitudes, and lifestyles speak to the reality that I'm a follower of Jesus? If you saw the accident and you were there, you can just, you can just clearly state that. And you can just offer that up. In your own life, how clearly is that evident? Secondly, what is God doing in my life right now that I can point to with confidence as convincing proof of my belief? You know, sometimes all this is is just slowing down long enough to being observant to what God's doing in your life. To just slow down long enough and realize, wow, there's like three answered prayer requests that I never even went back and said thank you to God for, but He answered our prayer. Last night, I'm tucking the kids in or we're praying. I think my wife and I were just praying before we went to bed. And I just thank God for the safety of our full day at swim trials and for the good attitudes that reign supreme in our family and across all the teams that were participating. I don't always do that. Not good. Just lay in bed and go, thanks, God. Thanks for answering that so abundantly. Question number three is this. Who is it that God's put you in a relationship that you just need to bring to Jesus? Maybe you've been trapped trying to be a go-between, trying to be a priest for that person, trying to answer every last theological nugget questions that they come up with, and they're just loving it. They're like, there's plenty on the Internet. I'll keep going. Maybe they're just evading issues, and you just go, man, you just need to come to Jesus yourself. Last question is this. What words of Jesus do I need to pass on? Philip heard, come and see. And so he turns around to the next guy and he says, uh, come and see. What words of Jesus have healed you that you need to go and pass on? What sparked devotion in you that you need to pass on? God, we need your help in this. We are thrilled to be in your family. God, I personally have inexpressible joy, although I don't always show it. God, I pray that we could glean from John the Baptist as he just clearly and succinctly states what it is that he knows. I pray, God, that you would give us boldness. If Paul asked for boldness, who was one of the most bold guys in all the New Testament, surely we need boldness too. I pray, Father, that as we think about devotion and as we sing love songs to you, and as we proclaim your goodness, as we celebrate the fact that our chains are gone, God, that you would in turn help us to be able to live that out and communicate that to people such that they can get in on this good deal. We love you so much, Lord. Help us to show that by our lifestyle. In your name we pray. Amen.